Hi, and welcome to History Respond. I'm your host, Bob Whitaker. On today's episode, we'll be talking about upcoming content for History Respond, as well as recent news related to upcoming historical games. News that would have come out at E3, but instead came out in drips and drabs over the course of June. And finally, we'll wrap things up today by discussing the games, historical or otherwise, uh, that we've been playing recently. And joining me on today's show to help me walk through all this material is John Harney. Hey, John, how are you doing? I'm good, Bob. How are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. Um, we're still uh, going through kind of social distancing and isolation here in Texas. Um, I hope things are going for well for you in Kentucky. Yeah, they're going pretty well, I think. The numbers are okay here, but we're still being pretty conservative, honestly. Um, I guess that's what we're all doing yep. until, until, until we know otherwise. Yep. Uh, so first thing today, uh, so I was going to talk a little bit about what's going on with History Respawned. Uh, as you probably noticed, the show has a new look and a new avatar in the form of Pixel Lincoln. Uh, and I've been talking to John for a long time about changing the look of the show, and we finally found the time in early June to work with some graphic artists to get a new look. Uh, so we hope you like it, um, and we're really excited about it. I'm excited about it. I don't know what John thinks. I love it. I love Pixel Lincoln. I love the fact that his name is also Pixel Lincoln. It's awesome. <laughs> uh, so the second thing we've got going on with History Respawn is we're developing kind of a new show uh, within the banner of History Respawn, and we're calling this new show Civs 101. And the idea behind this show is that we're going to have historians discussing the leaders and civs from Sid Meier's Civilization VI. And in particular, they're going to spend time considering the civs and how they're represented by the series and also investigate the idea of civilization, um, big C civilization in kind of a larger sense. And I think uh, we, uh, John and I, are going to do a couple of the early episodes for this, but then we're going to turn it over uh, to other scholars uh, so they get a chance to talk about this. And uh, the idea that we had was to do kind of a shorter uh, series of videos. So in other words, instead of like a 30, 45 minute video show or podcast, instead we'll have something that's about 15 minutes. So a bit easier to digest. And I think that that time is more than enough time to deal with kind of larger issues and micro issues related to the ways in which uh, particular sieves are dealt with by Sid Meier's game. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think History Respond in kind of bits and bobs has always kind of turned to civilization, which makes sense, you know, and a lot of people ask us about civilization. And I think this kind of deep dive makes sense for us and it'll be a good start. I'd enjoy Bob, you and me chatting about it, but we've got, we've got a lot of cool people that are hopefully going to come in and, and we're going to hear from them and um, it'll be great. We're, we're, we hope to tap into that exhaustive interest in civilization and civilization adjacent games. Mm-hmm. A little foreshadowing for later in the podcast there. Ooh, nice. Okay. <laughs> uh, and the last thing is we've got a set of regular History Respawn episodes coming up in the next couple of months. Uh, I am going to be working on the Assassin's Creed 3 episode, uh, the patron-voted Assassin's Creed 3 episode. Uh, and then John, for his part, uh, he's got episodes coming up on Old World, uh, the new 4X game. Uh, and then also, I think, John, you were you were looking at Ghosts of Tsushima as a as a possibility, right? I'm planning to do Ghosts of Tsushima. I'm really interested to see 
how much they get into the kind of Mongolian invasion era Japan stuff, as which would be, you know, sa- samurai stuff feels saturated, but there's so much stuff we actually very rarely, at least in the West, we very rarely kind of get exposed to. That game is also beautiful. It's mm-hmm. absolutely gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I'd be doing Ghost of Tsushima for sure. And then Old World I'm looking forward to, and I think we might do. It just came out in early access quite recently. And so I think we'll kind of do our own little early access look and maybe we'll revisit it again when it comes out. And Old World is uh, from the developers of Offworld Trading Company, mm-hmm. which uh, is a really interesting um, sci-fi strategy game where you're actually effectively, it's kind of an RTS except it's its pure capitalism or, you know, pre-military capitalism, what you want to call it. Um, and so they apparently, at least this is what other uh, people are saying with Old World, is it's an interesting hybrid of kind of a Civilization 4X type game and Crusader Kings 2 style um, character development. So I thought, well, it sounds like they made it just for me. So I'm uh, <laughs> I'm looking forward to looking at that soon. Yeah, the uh, developer of that game, uh, Mohawk Games, uh, is led by uh, Soren Johnson. Uh, and mm-hmm. Soren was, uh, I believe, uh, one of the lead developers on Civilization 3 and certainly the lead developer on Civilization 4. So he's got mm-hmm. an impressive pedigree when it comes to 4X games. And uh, he also has this wonderful podcast uh, called Designer Notes, uh, which is on the Idle Thumbs Network. And on that show, he interviews famous game developers, games writers, uh, producers, uh, about their work and about their careers. And so if you're interested uh, in 4X games, I highly recommend listening to uh, Designer Notes, uh, Soren Johnson's show. He's got a great series of episodes where he interviews uh, Brian Reynolds, uh, who developed uh, Sid Meier's Civilization II and uh, the uh, original version of Alpha Centauri. Uh, he's also got a four-part episode where he interviews Sid Meier, um, he interviews Bruce Shelley, uh, who developed Age of Empires and worked with Sid Meier on Civilization. Just a really, really, really good show if you're interested in that kind of stuff. Um, all right, well, I think that does it for the logistical stuff with History Respawn. I hope uh, all of that stuff sounds interesting <laughs> to, uh, uh, to all of our listeners, uh, and particularly to our patrons. Uh, again, thank you so much for your support. Uh, without patrons, we wouldn't have this podcast, uh, and we wouldn't have Pixel Lincoln in our life either so thank you very much uh okay well let's turn to talking about uh history news that came out of what we might call the non-e3 that we just had um and there really wasn't too much history game related news that came out of uh this past month um you know a lot of the bigger history related news or history game related news had come out in months previous in the spring you know, we had the announcement of uh, AC Valhalla. We had uh, more news about uh, Empire of Sin. Uh, and then we'd gotten uh, a lot of information already about humankind, uh, Amplitude's kind of challenger to uh, civilization. Uh, but there were uh, you know, kind of a few bits of more detail about some games that we had already had announced uh, in particular. Uh, we learned more about uh, Creative Assembly's new Total War game, uh, Total War Troy, uh, which is going to be looking at the uh, kind of historical and mythological versions of the Trojan War, uh, which was made famous, of course, by uh, Homer's epic poem, The Iliad. Uh, and this is a game, 
at least in pre-release coverage, uh, has really shown a lot of what you might call kind of a, I mean, it's an interesting mixture. They're going for a mixture of real historical detail about this time period and about this conflict, but then also adding in kind of mythological elements. And I think this is kind of an interesting direction for Creative Assembly for the Total War team because they've been doing this over the past, I don't know, five years or so, where they have a kind of a straight historical title, and then they follow that up with kind of a a science fiction or mythologically uh, inspired uh, Total War game. And so in this game, it kind of seems like they're trying to combine those two elements. Yeah, and Total War Three Kingdoms was totally a step along that path as well, because in addition to, and I guess Troy is a similar thing, you know, and it, the same thing with the history of the Peloponnesian War and the history of the Three Kingdoms, um, the actual source material you have is, you know, was written for specific reasons and specific cultural arenas and everything else. So they embrace that in Three Kingdoms to kind of embrace the ambiguity in a way that really worked. And then, in, which so I think they're taking it to the next step with Troy. And then in Three Kingdoms, you actually could pick your mode of which you wanted to play. Like, do you want to play a, a version of this game that is more about the characters, both in the actual battles, but also in the strategy? Or do you want to just play like, quote unquote, a typical total war game mm -hmm. in this setting. Mm -hmm. And I, I missed whether or not Troy offers that option, but I, I, I suspect it would, maybe not because the mythology thing comes in so much, but um, I think it's fascinating because the total war, total war three kingdoms is, is a really good game. And the Warhammer games are, are really good. Um, they're kind of bananas and that you kind of, they let themselves off the leash a bit, maybe mm -hmm. in a way they didn't want to do with like total war Attila. So, you know, is, is Troy the masterpiece? Is Troy another step on the road to, to the next part? I don't know. It's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, so Total War Troy is going to be coming out on August 13th, and it is going to be exclusive to the Epic Store, another kind of notch in the Epic Store's battle against Steam. <laughs> uh, and also, uh, Total War Troy will be free for the first 24 hours of its release on Epic Store. So that sounds interesting to you even if it doesn't sound that interesting to you and you just want a free game go to the epic store on august 13th and i'm sure the epic store servers will not crash at all and you'll <laughs> be able to download that game uh in no time no time at all <laughs> um so in addition to news about total war uh, we also had uh, some more uh gameplay trailers extensive playthrough news uh, preview news regarding crusader kings 3 uh, and most of that coverage, I don't know if you saw anything different, John, but most of that coverage mm -hmm. kind of focused on the new uh, user interface elements, you know, kind of yeah. trying to make the game more legible uh, to people who have maybe not been uh, as well-versed in Paradox games before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is something, you know, I, this has been a goal of theirs from the start, and I've said this before on the podcast, but if anybody plays Imperator Rome, or if you if you were interested in the uh the paradox games but just felt i just can't even get into this imperator rome is not a bad place to start because they improved things but it is a weird thing like i learned crusader kings 2 by going to a forum post this guy had like five web pages worth of how <laughs> ireland conquered like the early modern you know the medieval period medieval europe and um it sucks because um if you can get to the point where you're really kind of enjoying the game in that way it's one of the best gaming experiences you can have but getting people there is is really hard um so I'm glad uh, I'm glad they understand that. I hope they succeed with CK3 because CK3 it will definitely be the most accessible accessible game they've made. Mm -hmm. How accessible it will be, 
to ever i don't know yeah you know what i mean yeah because yeah. they've done some weird, like, I think they released Stellaris on console, didn't they? They, they did. They did all kinds of interesting things for those games. I mean, I would I would hope it works, too. Um, nah, and I, I think they can manage it without kind of an impinging too much on their successful gameplay formula. You know, what makes the Paradox games work so well. Uh, mm-hmm. But I would also love to have better UI so that it reaches more players and, you know, and perhaps it becomes a game that we could even use in a classroom setting uh, because I think right now it's it's too difficult that you couldn't do something like that. That's such a great point. I, I, I think you might have had this exact same experience, but like I would kind of crowdsource suggestions from gaming people of all kinds of different types, what to do in the classroom, and so many people will say to me, oh, you got to do, you know, you go burn for Salas 4 or Crusader Kings. I'm like, I can't. No, I can't. you can't. There, yeah. I can't onboard between 20 and 30 people. Yeah. It's just not... It's just not doable. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be awesome. It's also interesting, you know, there's been a debate the last few days in the United States about, um, in some sections, like dad history versus other types of history and stuff, um, i.e. what does accessible history look like? And the Paradox games are, there's a very different way of of engaging with history than, you know, Assassin's Creed uh, Odyssey, for example. They're not better, necessarily. It's different. Mm-hmm. So I kind of, I think they've got a space already, but I'd love to see it get bigger that history nerd in me i know there's more people like us they just haven't been awoken yet that's right (laughs) yeah they haven't been activated right exactly yeah uh and we also learned uh this month uh that uh, humankind uh, which is amplitudes again uh, challenger to the civilization series uh, is now being pushed back into 2021 largely because of uh, the outbreak the pandemic of COVID 19. Uh, but despite the pushback however the developers uh, have announced that they're releasing a series of free-to-play ser- scenarios uh, for humankind as part of amplitude's open dev initiative and i am not familiar with open dev but uh, from kind of glossing over the articles it looks like it's kind of a mixture of early access as well as an open beta so that the mm-hmm. developers are kind of collecting information about uh, the the scenarios that players are uh, playing through in open dev uh, so that they can kind of continue working and fine-tuning the game for uh, final release in 2021. Uh, and uh, if you are interested in Amplitude's open dev uh, and you want to sign up for it and get access to those scenarios, uh, you can go to their website, uh, Amplitude's website, uh, and that link is... Here it is, uh, www.gamestogether.com. And uh, it is not T-W-O uh, or T-O <laughs> together. It is the number two. So www.games2gether.com. Uh, and then from there, you can go and search for Humankind, search for Amplitude, uh, and they've got the scenarios uh, available there. And the scenarios that they've got so far, they include ones focused on Babylon, on Egypt, on Persia, on medieval France, on Korea. So kind of, you know, I, I would say kind of greatest hits for <laughs> 4X scenarios, uh, particularly Egypt and Persia. And to a limited extent, I think Korea as well. That's become much more popular on uh, the past couple of decades. Uh, but so, yeah, I'm, I'm curious uh, to see those. There's been a lot of more uh, preview coverage related to uh, Humankind. A lot of um, journalists have gotten a hold of it and played several hours. And I think the main um, kind of 
main point that they all have been pushing uh, in those preview articles is the fact that Amplitude is really trying to change what many people consider to be the biggest problem with civilization is the victory condition, right? Finding a way to get away from um, the kind of static victory conditions that we've had in civilization for the past almost 30 years now. Um, John, I don't know if have you read any of that coverage. I don't know what you make of the kind of pre-release coverage for humankind so far. Yeah, I think it's got a lot of goodwill out there which it, there seems to be no reason not to give it some goodwill. I think Amplitude have done amazing things. Um, they're, they're one of these few studios where I would, you know, them and Devolver are the two people that, like, I would probably buy almost everything they bring out <laughs> or at least look at it. So I'm definitely intrigued. I think that's been the goal. Again, going back to the Open Universalis, CK games, so on Paradox games, the the challenge of those games is is learning how to enjoy playing, like, 10 hours of real, of your actual life, and a hundred years of this in-game country, where you're never you're never the star, you mm-hmm. know, you know you're the Cincinnati Bengals, you know, of the medieval of medieval Europe, you know, <laughs> and that's just the way it's going to be, you know, um, and and I, that's my closest NFL team. So Bengal te- fans, don't be upset at me. Um, and how can you bring it into Civ? Because you know they talk about they bring in religion and culture type things, and it's been very very hard because there's going to be this gamers are gonna you know you have this almost subconscious or i'm here to play a game how do i win the game type mm-hmm. hardwiring mm-hmm. stuff so how do they get around that because it's not as simple as making religion a game you can win either because how do you win religion you make everybody buddhist or whatever um so i'm in, i'm intrigued um yeah i think they're, they're getting a lot of positive coverage but you know i think that's that's the right way to cover games until you know otherwise so mm-hmm. i'm excited i'm disappointed by the delay but um, I mean, you know, e- even without present present circumstances and everything, if that's what it takes to make the game better, then then do it. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, and I I'm curious to see what they do with kind of the in game uh, for their four X title. Um, you know, I think they've made a lot of reference to uh, the so called fame system, which sounds a little bit like a cultural victory. Um, yeah. and I think that sounds more palatable probably to most players than uh, the kind of extermination path available in civilization. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, I, I, I think it's curious that, you know, culture and fame is seen as a, a more palatable victory condition, largely because, you know, that the past 40 or so years since the end of the Cold War, you know, cultural imperialism, cultural globalization has been a huge sticking point for most of the developing world. Uh, and I don't know if that's necessarily a more palatable version. I mean, it's certainly less violent, but uh, it does do a lot of disservice uh, to non-Western countries, non-Western states. So I'll be curious, really curious to see how they um, how they deal with that. I'm going to take off my cultural Marxism hat now. Uh, (laughs) and uh we're gonna wrap things up uh with the new game announcements by talking about a couple of titles that came out or were announced uh during uh, sony's reveal uh related to the playstation 5 and john you had a game i think it's called little devil inside that you wanted to mention yeah yeah i just thought this was an interesting kind of incident so there's this um you know the the playstation 5 reveal video was kind of it was pretty good, and I, I'd encourage people to go and watch it if you haven't, even if you're just zooming through a lot of the kind of talking head stuff. 
Um, a lot of good trailer stuff in there. And there was a trailer for this uh, game, Little Devil Inside, which looks extraordinarily... The artwork is beautiful, and it just seems like a very promising, very imaginative game. And you very, very briefly in this trailer, you see these kind of mobs, I guess they are, these kind of clearly disposable bad guys running at you. And they're quite... They're small... um, and they have these uh, Polygon did a, did a good a number of listed good stories in this that showed images, kind of white masks and hairstyle that may or may not be dreadlocks on the white mask with these large red lips and everything. And it was just imagery that made a lot of people or certainly made some people feel very uncomfortable. Um, and I myself kind of watching the video didn't really notice in part because it just kind of goes by so quickly. When you see it, it's still it's like, yeah, this is kind of very reminiscent of um the kind of the gollywog type imagery that was very very popular in the western world at the beginning of the 20th century mm-hmm. if you don't know what that is i when i was a child my favorite ice cream was a golly bar and on the golly bar the golly bar was a block of vanilla on a stick i grew up in a poor country and um the golly oh well not that poor because we had ice cream yeah had ice cream the, uh, yeah i was gonna say yeah exactly yeah so and the golly was it was it was a small it was yeah, it was a small african black dark-skinned child with kind of dreadlocks or very, very curly hair and big red lips. And it's just all this, this was the 1980s. There's all this imagery that was very, very common decades earlier. So what interested me was the developers immediately came out and said, okay, we, we, we didn't, you know, that was not not intentional. Um, We're going to review it. And then they very, very quickly came out after and were said, we're just going to redesign it. We're just going to redesign it. Um, And I thought it was really interesting because for one, they clearly a very talented art team, um, who are clearly enjoying the design part of their job. And so I think they can just make more things. I think, I mean, obviously it's work, but I think that they'll enjoy it. But also, and, you know, my, my, my reaction to it was, it really seemed like a genuine apology. I really don't think they had any idea, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and that when it was brought to their attention, it's like, oh, oh. And, and, and we don't even want to debate it. It's just a case of like, well, if it has that connotation or if some people say it does, let's just let's just let's just get rid of it and yeah. do something else. Yeah. I thought it was just fascinating because for you and me as historians, this is how these things do persist, where people operating with the best of intentions who genuinely meant nothing by it. As far as I know, I doubt very much there's a closet wannabe KKK member on their team. Yeah. I'm very, very doubtful that would be the case. But this is how these things uh, persist. I thought it was, I really thought it was fascinating. Yeah. I mean, I think that kind of speaks to the importance of having a very diverse um, production team, diverse developers. Uh, and if uh, you can't have a diverse development team, you know, perhaps have outside consultants uh, help with that kind of stuff before you. Uh, promote it before you release trailers and whatnot. Um, because, you know, you can, again, like you said, approach it with the best uh, intentions, but then kind of be totally blind uh, to a right. certain aspect of it. So, um, yeah, hopefully they can come up with something that's as compelling uh, or, you know, is not as insulting, <laughs> I should yeah. say. And um, I think, I, I'm sorry, what I found interesting about it as well was that, um, and it's just a trailer, but it was a really, really impressive trailer. And so it's just intriguing to me the extent to which what appears to be very good execution is helping to kind of shape the whole interaction. I think there's a couple of things. One, that was an isolated thing. It wasn't like there wasn't a recurring theme mm-hmm. of weirdness. Like the most famous example of this in the last 10 years would be Resident Evil 5, right? Yes. Where they had the, yeah. at least this trailer that's just white Resident Evil guy murdering lots of Oh God, it was terrible. So um, that was awful. This this didn't have that, and then it was just it. It seems to be such a well-made game 
that when the developers are very quickly coming out going, oh, God, didn't mean it, we'll change it. It's interesting to me that it didn't, you know, it didn't rumble on, mm-hmm. you know, as some kind of a, and they didn't ask to be absolved either. They didn't, sh- you know, they just kind of went, oh, OK. And I thought I thought that was kind of intriguing. So if the game was less impressive looking, you know, you know what I mean? Like if it was like a middling game or or or, or, or if those themes had continued. So all these little kind of it's just fascinating because where where are these where should these tipping points be? Yeah. You know, because this wasn't a case of some people with some some historians like you and me pointing it out after it came out. This happened almost immediately, you know, at the time. Yeah. And like you say, Bob, having somebody from a group that might be considered to be represented by that kind of going, uh, you know, like someone in the room to kind of go, uh, guys, you know, like, you know, that's that that's a valuable input sometimes. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Um, another game that was uh, mentioned uh, in the Sony uh, video stream uh, was a game called uh, Paradise Lost. I don't know if you saw any of this one, John, but uh, it's a game that's scheduled to be released later this year. Uh, and in the game, which kind of looks, based on gameplay trailers, looks like kind of a, a walking simulator slash puzzle solver. Uh, it has you playing as a 12-year-old boy uh, who's caught up in a world in which the Second World War never ended. Uh, and in the world, you discover a mysterious Nazi bunker uh, while roaming a kind of a post-apocalyptic version of Poland. Um, and in this version of Poland, there's been a uh, Second World War going on for 20-plus years. They've uh, unleashed nuclear weapons, and so you are taking refuge in this Nazi bunker uh, in this post-apocalyptic version of Poland. Um, and so it's it's kind of a game, it looks like, um, has maybe similar alternative history elements to say like Wolfenstein, but it's not kind of a, a grab bag of action blockbuster cliches. Instead, it's kind of meditative, uh, focused on quiet moments, uh, you know, walking simulator mm-hmm. type game. And in the gameplay trail I've seen so far, the, the so-called Nazi bunker uh, this boy is going into has a lot of interesting elements. There's some serious uh, uh, Nordic elements to it as well so i don't know i'm kind of i'm curious about this one it looks like kind of a alternative history game but with a lot of extra mystery uh laid into it yeah and i i saw a little bit it looks interesting all this kind of stuff makes you think of a uh, being an english major in college and how they would tell us and of course in the 1870s you know all the novels were like are you know some you know gothic for example such and such genre this is what they're about this is why they're talking about it this is why the style was here and and we could start doing it now, but we'll be doing that in 40 years. Like, well, this was, you know, derisively called walking simulator. So you have kind of the walking simulator thing. You have this continued commitment from lots of creators to like to really kind of play with narrative and gameplay. And then, you know, Nazis, you know, like you could, you know, <laughs> some who's going to write who's going to write. One of us should write a book on the uh, the evolution of depiction of Nazis in video games, you know, because mm-hmm. absolutely fascinating. And of course, they'd also look back and they'd explain to the young people 40 years from now that some idiots in Charlottesville, Virginia, decided to be a clever idea to run around with tiki torches. And so mm-hmm. these it's one of these rare, like, you know, the clouds clear. And I'm like, oh, this is so weird. Like this is this is the, things like this are totally going to be discussed yep. 40 years in the future. Yep. And of course, I hope Paradise Lost is a good enough video game to earn that kind of thing. But without I, I'm not saying it sounds original. I'm just saying I can see it fitting into a certain this zeitgeist going back at least a decade. Yeah. 
yeah it was fascinating definitely um so i think that does it for the history related news that came out of uh, quote unquote non e3 um there were some interesting uh, non-history related games and particularly for me i was excited to hear that there was a new horizon zero dawn game coming out uh, called horizon forbidden west uh, there's a new spider-man game coming out um i don't know if anything caught your eye john anything that, that excited you from the past month of game news definitely the horizon zero dawn sequel the kind of slow burning mega hit i mean it sold really quickly i feel like everyone realized after a month oh wait a minute this game's amazing um they have dinosaurs right robot dinosaurs they kind of that's one of these games that put so much effort into constructing its own history i think we should be allowed to to count it yeah. um yeah, the Demon Soul remake. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I never finished Demon Soul, so um, that's totally something that I think I would play. Um, but yeah, it's 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 kind of um, I know everything feels in such a weird moment right now with all, <laughs> all these things, you know, with all these things. But I think overall, it made me feel good. Um, Stray, if anybody saw it again on the PS5 reveal, where it's this really well rendered, beautiful kind of video or game game engine stuff of a cat roaming, basically Tokyo populated by robots. Yes, yeah. Um, and it seems that you control the cat, so I hope that's something I want to play. It might be something I might want to read about somebody else playing, but um, yeah, things are healthy, and I think what interested me as well is is um. The whole exclusive thing, especially for listeners our age and older, Bob, we'll remember when exclusives were a thing. Like uh, Peter Moore, who now works at Liverpool Football Club, um, you know, revealing his Grand Theft Auto tattoo. And remembers that little cultural moment. <laughs> and now that just that just feels like another planet entirely now. Yeah. You know, except maybe for Halo, I guess. Um, and I guess God of War, but, you know. So, yeah, no. We're in good. We're in good shape. Iron Harvest. There was a demo last week. I know. I missed uh, it. Yeah. Did you get a chance? With, no. Okay. Yeah. I downloaded it. <laughs> <laughs> Can you still access it? No, no, no. 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 Badly for me. Yeah, um, I was. I was really I, sad. It was. It a, looks good. It was bad timing for me. Uh, I meant to go and for this podcast look at some of the. Uh, maybe some of the words that people had written about playing it or maybe even videos of them playing it, but I didn't have a chance to. But uh, that's definitely a game that's on our radar. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, another non-history game I was excited by was uh, Star Wars Squadrons, which is uh, mm-hmm. came out during the uh, EA uh, press conference, video, stream, whatever you want to call it. Um, and this is a uh, kind of, it looks like it's taking up the mantle of uh, the old Star Wars Rogue Squadron games published by uh, LucasArts and updating that for the kind of uh, modern multiplayer generation. Uh, so I that, that game looked really awesome, and I'm really excited <laughs> to try it out. It looks like it's also going to be published on VR, VR platforms as well, so uh, I might be in the market for virtual reality headset. I, I, for our listeners, I've been texting and emailing john basically for the past five months however long we've been in isolation uh saying like this might be the week i get the vr headset over and over again i just talk myself out of it but uh yeah i i might i might have to get a vr headset for that game i'm i'm really excited about it cool 
All right. Well, uh, I thought we might spend the last, I don't know, few minutes or so talking about some of the games that we've been playing, uh, mm-hmm. you know, either history games or non-history games. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to you, John, ask you, what have you been playing? What have you been up to? There's a game I've been playing that we've both been playing, so we'll talk about it in a minute. Um, but I've also been playing the last few days Out of the Out of the Park Baseball 21. Oh, okay. Um, which on sale, and for people who don't know, Out of the Park Baseball is a baseball management sim. Um, it's probably it's 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 probably the uh, Crusader Kings. No, it's not. It's the Europa Universalis three, I think, of a uh, not four of a sports sims. In that it's awesome, but my God, um, you're kind of manipulating spreadsheets at a certain point. Actually, the whole point. It's it's ludicrously in depth. Um, but the reason I bring it up is that um, I installed it and I'm really getting a lot of enjoyment out of it. And um, it's really the last time I played it, they didn't have MLB license just yet, so you would have to you would have to randomize the names of the teams three times, and they would all magically match the current major league setup, <laughs> um, which I loved. Um, but now they have that, but they also have lots of they have a huge amount of fan service towards historical players. So I'm playing Perfect Game, which is a version of kind of the FIFA Ultimate Team, you know, the, you know those EA card collecting, build your own team modes. Mm-hmm. Um, they have that, um, and it's a lot of fun. And they have historical cards that you mm. can buy through auction, um, or you can pull out of a pack. You can buy an historical pack during certain sales periods and everything else. So I put in a bid last night for Satchel Page, which is pretty cool. Um, but it's not Satchel Page in the Euro Leagues; it's Satchel Page in the Major League. So it's oh, his rookie card, oh, no. it's like already forty-two. Yeah. Um, but he's pretty good because that's that's how it was in real life. And it's just really nice because they have different. They have like a. You know, but they also have a Satchel Page Peak card, and they've got you know all these different things, and so they've actually, I think they've done a great job of matching together a more recent concept, which is fantasy baseball, the roto wire type stuff from the 1980s going up till today, and video games, with card collecting, which goes back you know a century at least, um, and it's really cool because you can get all these cards, and they're kind of trash for using in the actual game. You know, you open a pack, and one of them is usable, right? But then they have all these missions. Oh, well, you know, if you want all the Detroit Tigers cards of the current roster, this guy counts towards that collection. Mm. And you can add, and you open up that little page, and it's like a little virtual card collection. And, in fact, they have, I mentioned Satchel Page, they have a special Negro Leagues collection because this is actually, this year is the 100th anniversary of the Negro Leagues. Mm-hmm. There's a huge move um, from baseball historians online to celebrate that fact and celebrate this 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 amazing kind of part of baseball's history. Um, so it's really well done, and of course, if you if you go away from the build your own team perfect perfect team uh, mode in the regular mode, you could pick basically you can pick any season you want in the history of baseball as your starting season. Wow! So if you want to see if um, you could win with the nineteen twenty seven Yankees, which theoretically shouldn't be very hard, you can do that. Um, and I just think it's just amazing. Like one of these days, I've got to figure out a way some fun thing to do maybe i would just simulate a season and and blog about it on the on the website or something um because it's a very slow burn mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of thing but it definitely appeals to a specific type of of, of historian yeah. and of course baseball is obsessed with its history and i think this is one of the best games i've ever seen that successfully translates that into video games yeah and you know many historians i know are obsessed with baseball uh largely because it has such a risk history and I think it's awesome to hear that they've got so many historical elements in the game. So uh, you you can't have the team names right, but they've got players in there. How they does that work? They can now. They can now. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Years ago, they couldn't have any of it, but now okay. they have 
they have the full license they have all of it they have um on the steam page they have a, a certain man uh, mr henry uh, owner of a football club and to a lesser extent the boston red sox it's this other team he also owns uh sorry, <laughs> speaking um, and and he's gushing about how how good they are and everything and it's um it's it's a ludicrously um intimidating game if anybody's listening to it going that sounds kind of interesting know that it's desperately intimidating so if you open up a regular game it's like hey do you want to hire managers for your major league team your triple a your double a your single a your single a in mexico and your single a in hawaii and it's like uh like it's just it's it's pretty cheap yeah. um but you could play the perfect game mode and do what i'm doing which is just looking for cards of players you thought were cool yeah and and, and putting them on second base and satchel page hopefully i'll check after we're finished recording he should start my next game for me, hopefully, if, nice. if I won the auction. So, nice. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> um, so you mentioned it up at the top of this section, but we've both been playing The Last of Us 2. And uh, this is a game, I, I guess it must have come out a couple weeks ago, I want to say. So, we'll, so. We'll, uh, we'll avoid spoilers here, which I think will be pretty easy. But um, what have you made of that game so far? Um, I really like it so far. Um I have friends who finished it already. Um, I have children, and I basically squeeze in a little bit of gameplay. I'm playing this game in the weirdest way, like 30 minutes at a time yeah. each night. So I'm very slow moving through it. Um, it's funny because both this and it's the previous game um, can get mixed reviews sometimes online. But um, I loved the first game. I thought the first game kind of did narrative in a kind of a triple A big budget game in a way that was really impressive. I think that the story is just good i think that video game people will often give games a pass um on their story will even celebrate stories that in truth maybe aren't aren't that impressive um and i think a lot of the time that's fine and it's justified but i thought the story of the first game was excellent i won't even spoil the first game and i think this a similar thing is happening in uh, in the second in this in this new game i think the story so far is really good the characters are really well realized and then they you know and they match that with this enormous um investment of labor and money mm -hmm. into creating these you know the word used to be photorealistic right like this these amazing these ways that the actors the human actors on whom the characters are visually based are expressing astonishing nuance you know in their faces that's that's the least academic <laughs> way to say but um tremendous so me, facial fidelity yeah, I guess so. And then it, but then it sounds like kind of a manual thing. But I think back, you know, to uh, um, a game of which I know you're very fond, Bob, L.A. Noir, mm -hmm. you know, um, yeah. and the the plaudits that it rightfully got for like really kind of going hard on 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 how characters' faces could become evocative. And we're just seeing, I think, Naughty Dog or they're kind of looping in all these big budget game lessons into a storytelling driven game. Yeah, is how I feel about it. Yeah. Um, so I'm really enjoying it so far. Yeah, um, I'm really enjoying it too. You know, I think a lot of criticism that's been written about it, and I've been avoiding it largely because I don't want to spoil the game for myself, but it seems like in the bits of criticism that I've read, a lot of it centers on kind of the game's violence and graphic depiction of violence and, um, you know, kind of making the point that this is more of The Last of Us because The Last of Us had a lot of those same elements. And for me, I adored the first game. And so hearing that this game was more of The Last of Us, that's just right up my alley. And like you, I've been playing it about 
an hour of night. Um, I'm about, I guess about 16 hours in. Mm -hmm. And I think at this point though, I'm kind of ready to see the end, but I hear that there's a lot more of the game ahead of me. So I'm a little bit intimidated by that, but I'm also kind of, uh, of the opinion that I'm okay with the length of the game because it gives me these, like you've talked about, it gives me these kind of nightly, uh, uh, episodes of the game basically mm -hmm. where I can play for half an hour to an hour uh, and feel fulfilled and then do the same thing again tomorrow night. Um, you know, I think if I was still in my twenties without kids, I would have, I definitely would have finished it by now. I probably would have finished it in one weekend. Um, yeah. But it's been nice uh, to have it kind of stretched out over the course of a few weeks. Uh, not only because, uh, you know, it gives me something to do at night, but then also, uh, yeah, I think it helps to mediate a little bit of the kind of problem with violence and brutality that the game mm -hmm. has and makes it a, a little bit easier to take because I'm not doing it all at once. I think that if you were playing it like somebody who was reviewing the game, you know, in the span of three days or so, mm -hmm. it might be a lot to take in all at once. That's a great point, because, I mean, the way that I'm playing it, I tend to kind of, like, I'll say to my wife, so I'm just going to get to the next story beat, and then we'll watch the next episode of Succession together. That's basically what's been happening, and um, and uh, which is an HBO show with Brian Cox in it. And um, I'm, I'm always banging this drum, but I, I'm fascinated. I think it's a great thing for the medium overall. The medium has found so many different ways to talk about and represent violence, and other things as well. Um, you know, horror games, of course, are a genre with a long history. But it's also intriguing to me that, um, you know, I know people get awkward about the video games as art discussions and everything else, but literature has a lot of different ways it handles these kinds of things. And one of the ways that novels handle violence is to to make you feel bad. Mm -hmm. um, there are novels that explicitly do that, you mm -hmm. know, deliberately. They're trying to do that. And so, and it's just, I think that's just interesting that video games are starting to move into that kind of territory and it's okay that not everyone liked that or people felt it wasn't successful in in that way. But I also think, you know, and I've been thinking of this a lot with some of the um, revelations over the last week or two in video games culture more broadly that like, you know, I often think of Bob, of you and me as this first generation that have kind of grown up with games, which isn't actually true at all. The generation ahead of us kind of is. But I think back to things, representations of violence didn't bother me at all when I was like 15, that by the time I was 30, I was like, oh my God. Um, representations of women for example mm -hmm. or any kinds of sexual things or like stuff that didn't bother me at all when i was 21 when i was 10 years later i've got you know i'm married to a woman and she's in the house and i don't want her to see this game i'm playing yeah i forget what game that was and it was I, it, might, I, it wasn't you know it wasn't dead or alive or anything like that but um so it's just intriguing to me that i don't know how we handle that at the same time because um what we're starting to see, I think the, the writing online is going to be dominated by people in their 20s for a lot of different reasons. There's nothing wrong with being in your 20s, don't so get me wrong. But we're definitely starting to see different different age groups writing on stuff simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And I'm just kind of intrigued by, by that. Yeah. Because, because now we're getting all these different kinds of takes. Because, I mean, let me be clear. I am not arguing that John Harney writing at, you know, age 39 has more... Um, has more authenticity or more, um, I don't know what I'm looking for. A, you know, I, my, my, my views are not more legitimate than a 19 year old. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not what I'm saying, mm -hmm. but, but I think we see more of that kind of generational diversity now than we, 
than was possible 20 years yeah. ago. Yeah. And I, one of the things I would say to that uh, is that I think it's great to have so many different age groups writing and so many different uh, people from diverse backgrounds writing about games because, you know, there's this sense and that I would say, you know, particularly with game critics and, and, you know, people who just play games who are in their late 30s, their 40s, who've grown up with games, who kind of feel like they have ownership over it. And you, you hear this refrain a lot. You know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, when they're talking about games, criticizing games, and it's like, well, that's just video games. That's just the way <laughs> the medium is, you know, when it comes to sexism, when it comes to ultraviolence, you know, it's just, it's just the way it is. That's just the medium. But you're getting uh, more diverse writers, you're getting uh, writers from different age groups who are coming in and saying, why is that the case, right? Why are we doing it this yep. way, you know? And that's yep. great. I think that totally needs to happen. Um, and that's really refreshing. So I, I think, you know, to speak to your point, uh, I too feel like, um, you know, I don't have a, a better claim over the truth of games mm -hmm. uh, than somebody who's just coming to them and just starting to write about them or just starting to write games. Um, you know, I think that... Uh, the great thing about video games is that the medium is, uh, is still pretty loose. You know, I don't think it's gotten mm -hmm. into the state that film and uh, certainly novels have gotten into where they feel very kind of mm -hmm. siloed, right? You know, you've got your science fiction here, you've got your, um, you know, nonfiction stories, all of this stuff. I don't feel like games have really gotten to that point, unless you're talking about like racing games or fighting games. Sure. But sure. Anything that's got a narrative base to it still feels very open. And I think it's really exciting. And I'm really excited yeah. about the next decade. You know, so long as the virus doesn't kill us all, I'm really excited <laughs> to see the new games that come out and, you know, coming from different perspectives. Yeah. And I think, you know, you're making a great point because. The dominant perspective theoretically was effectively the perspective of a 16-year-old boy slash man, even though it was being executed by 35-year-old men. And, you know, I, I say that not necessarily in super specific gender racial ways, but just like esports is such a great example of this. Like like when Blizzard, when StarCraft 2 was the only esports, StarCraft 1 was the only esport. And there were guys, that, like top players in StarCraft, who when they lost the game would go onto the chat with them and the other player and just fire obscenities at them. Oh, yeah. Like, called the most awful. Oh, like, yeah. It was just shocking, unacceptable, not adult behavior. And and nobody, nobody, the only reaction ever was, oh, that guy, he's famous for that. <laughs> and, like, nobody stepped in. Whereas now, you know, if you were watching League of Legends Worlds and someone did that, like, that would be a scandal. Mm -hmm. be unacceptable. Um, and so it's an example of one of the positives, I think, that comes from, you know, mainstreaming, because you, you can't have it both ways, right? You can't have these games that cost hundreds of millions of dollars to make with massive teams, but also have it respond to the exact things you liked yeah. 20 years ago. It's yeah. just not how it works. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that does it for me. I haven't played anything else. Um, what about you? Anything? Uh, Monster Train. People should play Monster Train. It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Monster Train is a, is a, it's basically a deck building card game that um uh that i shouldn't be playing because it's eaten up my life that's, that's, so, <laughs> what's with you and cards you've got cards in your baseball game you've got cards in yeah, your monster train it's true <laughs> it's what? true i'm on a card playing binge it's true no. um <laughs> well i think that does it for this episode of history respawn john thank you so much for joining me on this episode thank you bob it's always fun and dear listener, thank you for uh, tuning in. 
uh, and listening to this episode of the History Respawn podcast. If you're interested in learning more about History Respawn, please visit our website at www.historyrespawn.com. And if you enjoy our work, enjoy the show, then please consider supporting us on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash History Respawn. Until next time, goodbye.